Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, truly we thank you for the truths in that song. Reminder, Lord, that we are sinners. That if you were to number all our sins, who could stand before you, Lord? We readily admit that none of us could. We all fall short greatly of your glory. And yet, Lord, we thank you for your mercy, your steadfast love that sends us your Son to atone for our sins, to die in our place. Oh, Lord, what great mercy you've shown towards us in him. Thank you, Father, for the hope of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. The knowledge that we can stand before you even now with no fear of condemnation. Though we still live in the flesh and we are still prone to sin and prone to wander, we're still prone to be drawn to the worldly idols that surround us. And we, yet we know, God, that you are the one who protects your people. You give us your word to, to protect us and, and guide us so that we would think after your thoughts, that we would receive all that we need to, to fight in tempt, against temptations of sin, that we would strive to, by your grace to be able to live lives holy and pleasing to you reflective of our great God who we worship. Lord, may you use your word now to shape us, to continue to mold us into the image of Christ. May you continue to mold and shape this church to be the body of Christ that you desire us to be so that we would be your effective witnesses to our world for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Again, just a warm welcome to all of you that are here joining us today, uh, whether you just walked in from the neighborhood or you're a little, from, uh, a little further on and, uh, and everybody in between. Uh, we just uh, are joy to see you here. It's good to have you worshiping with us. Uh, it was a wonderful time of those, uh, yesterday at our church picnics. You guys, I can see some of those. I was going to say y'all look a little redder, but look, y'all look a little browner, actually. Many of you. Uh, look a little browner and a little bit. Uh, got a nice sun yesterday. It was a fantastic time of fellowship with uh, church family. Uh, hopefully, I hope uh, you left the church picnic uh, knowing uh, one or two people, a little few more people in our church family, a little better than before you came. And so if you missed it, well, don't have no fear, there'll be another one next year. Uh, maybe we can throw in one uh, before then. But anyways, it's, uh, it was a wonderful time. Thank you all those of you who served. I saw many guys, many hands were serving, so I appreciate the body of Christ coming together for that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, church family, and thank you. Thanks the Lord for the blessing of fellowship yesterday. Anyways, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me now to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 25 is where we're going to be. We're studying through the book of Numbers, and we're going to continue through uh, this wonderful study. Numbers chapter 25. <clears throat> and I'm going to actually read a passage uh, out of 2 Corinthians uh, and, and to start us off today, uh, but uh, we'll be mostly in Numbers. In Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, he wrote these sobering words of warning in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 14 through 18. The words here are an allusion, allusion to what God had said in Leviticus 26, which was our call to worship. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? That's another name for the devil. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God in 2 Corinthians 6 warns his church, the church of Christ, to be holy and set apart from the world. That is, Christians are not to be bound together to have any partnership with unbelievers. There can be, in fact, no partnership and no fellowship that a Christian can have with the world. We are, in, in God's eyes, there are really just two ways of living, two paths, and they're going to two different destinations with two sets of values. Like Christ and Belial, they have nothing in common. The devil, like the temple of God and idols, they do not mix. There is nothing in common between these things. For why? Because we, have a, we worship a God who dwells in our midst. As he dwelt among Israel in the middle of their camp, so he dwells in us, the church of Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit today. We are his people, signed with the seal of the Holy Spirit. And as his people, we must be holy, we must be vigilant to remain holy and set apart from the world. It doesn't mean we need to move apart from the world to go hide in a cave somewhere. That's not what God's calling. But God wants us to be holy in the midst of this world, to be, in a sense, separate from the world in a, in a very real sense. We must be vigilant to not allow the world's philosophies, the world's beliefs, nor the world's actions to influence our own. And what is true for Israel is true for the church in Corinth, is true for the church in San Francisco. We are surrounded by worldliness. If there's a one church in the New Testament that I think is most like San Francisco, it, it's the church in Corinth, okay? It's the, I mean, it's a beautiful location, just like we have a beautiful location. It's a, it's, a, it's a place where a lot of people come through. We have young people coming all the time for internships. People come for school. People come in, and they just love coming to this city because it's a, it's a young person's city. Just look around. But it's also a place of worldliness. It's a weird place of immorality. It's a place that prides itself on leading the culture. We are surrounded here in San Francisco by secular speculations that are often raised up as lofty things. We call them sometimes philosophies, but they are all raised up against the knowledge of God. And this influence is coming at us from early on in our lives. It comes to us and it influences us through the things that we watch on movies and television, through the things that we read in books, magazines, blogs, the things we listen to on the radio. It's even taught to us in the curriculums that we, learn, that we study in our schools from young on. And it's being influenced and pressed upon us by our government's local, state, as well as federal 
We're surrounded by secular influences that would want us and want the church to deny God as being the ultimate rule and authority. And if we're not filling ourselves at the same time with the world's influence, with God's word, we will not have the filter that we need to resist against these influences. And surely, inevitably, if we are not, don't have the grid of God's word, we're going to be influenced by the world, and we're going to, in turn, eventually become immoral, and we're going to eventually fall into idolatry, a secular idolatry as well. And then we start asking the same question that Satan asked our first parents. Indeed, has God said? Did God really say that that was wrong? Yeah, I don't know if that's really in the Bible. Well, actually, sadly, many church people don't even know what's in the Bible anymore because they don't study the Word. Well, thankfully, we have the Word this morning. This morning's passage is a powerful reminder to the people of God of the dangers of succumbing to the ungodly influences in our world. I hope that you, as you, even though many of you are young and you may not be thinking about it, but hopefully... Maybe you are thinking about it. I rejoice if you are, that you are constantly aware that the world is trying to influence you. It's trying to influence your thoughts, your, uh, your, your worldviews, your perspectives on this world. The slight, small things that you would find it for, at first innocuous, at first innocent, but eventually it re- it's underlying it as a secular philosophy and worldview that causes eventually to start questioning the things of God. And we eventually fall into idolatry, immorality, like the world around us. This uh, chapter, Numbers 25, is the last chapter in the story of Balaam. You guys have been tracking with me with, uh, in the story of Balaam. In chapter 22, the king of Moab, uh, Balak, hired and sought out this r- renowned seer named Balaam from Mesopotamia. And he hired him to come and curse Israel because he wanted to defeat Israel in battle. But God would not allow Balaam to do so. In fact, the Balaam wanted to for, for the money that he could get. But yet, still, God said, you can only go if you will speak only the word which I give you to speak. And so eventually, Balaam went with Balak. And then in chapters 23 and 24, when, Balak, when Balaam opened his mouth and he gave his oracles from God, God, in those oracles, affirmed his blessing upon the nation of Israel. And remember, we learned that when God blesses, no one can revoke it. No one can surmount, sur- circumvent it and overcome it because God is a, our Lord God who is sovereign. And though sadly, while God consistently and through the, the attacks of Balak, the attacks of Balaam, the efforts of Balaam, that God remained faithful, though he remained faithful to Israel because he has blessed Israel, Here in this chapter, chapter 25 of Numbers, we see this sad story of how Israel, in turn, becomes unfaithful to God. They fall into idolatry. They fall into immorality, much like the people around them. Still, God, who is faithful, who has blessed Israel, would not let them go. And as we're going to see in this story, he will faithfully discipline them and to, in order to bring them back to him. So as we're going to look at this, uh, this story of the affair of Peor, hopefully you've, you know, you've read your Bible, you kind of are somewhat familiar with this story, but it's, uh, we can walk through it once again and just tell the story and draw out the principles from it for us today. We're going to look at three parts of this, to this story of the affair of Peor, three events in it. They remind God's people 
to guard against idolatry and immorality in our world, okay? And we want to be guarding against that at all times. All right, so let's take a look then. The first event that we find here regarding the affair of Peor that uh, is is an encouragement, is, is a lesson about the rise of idolatry. You know, I'm going to venture to guess none of us here are going to want to worship idols anytime soon, right? None of us. But yet, in the people of God, there's this moment where idolatry arises up, and we see this little, how this happens in the nation of Israel, and hopefully it's a warning for us today. Look at chapter 25 of Numbers, verses 1 through 3. Numbers 25, 1 to 3. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Shittim is, a, is an area, it's a location in the plains of Moab. Shittim actually means acacia tree. So it was, a, it was some area within the, in the plains of Moab where they were camping, camping that had a lot of acacia trees. And these are uh, oftentimes large shrub, shrubby type trees. They can grow pretty big. But anyways, while Israel is camped there in the plains of Moab in Shittim, they're waiting for the Lord to lead them before they enter the promised land, right? God's, the cloud has to get up and move before they're going to know that they could proceed. But while they're camping there in the plains of Moab, they're probably relaxing. It says here that the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. And when you hear that phrase, it's, just, it is, it's a striking thing, a shocking thing that's happening to Israel. Notice, first of all, though, this is not just an isolated incident, that this involves the people. It's not just a few of the people, some of the people, but it's the people, the people as a whole. We see the people mentioned in verse 1, we see the people mentioned in verse 2, and uh, uh, twice in verse 2, in fact. The people of God as a whole are guilty in this activity that they do. The phrase here, it says, they began to play the harlot. And that's, uh, that's pretty much putting it in pretty nice terms. Uh, you can read your other translations. It, it's putting it into pretty, it's a very shocking phrase to play the harlot, to, uh, to, uh, to, to practice, to, and, to prostitute themselves, to commit whoredom. These, these kind of, they're words that convey sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, that's what this word conveys. And it definitely it conveys that there was a physical sexual immorality that was taking place in, in Israel. But this word also in the Bible conveys this idea of spiritual infidelity. And for Israel, in this case, both are involved. They're practicing sexual immorality that is also a spiritual infidelity towards their God. But how could Israel suddenly just start sinning against God in its way? This is the people that have been led by God out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, received the law, received all the food they could eat, the bread, uh, the manna from heaven. They never, they, they had water to drink. Their clothes never ran out. They just wandered around. God dwelt among them. He was in their midst. And they wandered everywhere. Yes, they had sin, and yet God remained faithful to them. And still, how do they fall into idolatry? Well, the same way that you know that Jesus Christ died for your sin, but we still sin. We easily forget. We start thinking that, that, that the cross is so far away, so far removed. We forget how much God has loved us. But nevertheless, let's, let's move, move. this thing, however, didn't just happen overnight. It happened gradually. 
Notice it says even the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of, is with the daughters of Moab. We learned that this was the result of a gradual process. How did they begin, just simply begin to play the harlot? How did that happen? Verse 2 explains. It says, For they, that is the women of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. They basically invited them to their, the community festivals. The community feasts is what they did. They were being, as far as they know, hospitable. Remember the story of, in the, throughout the story of Balaam, Israel had no idea what was happening. They had zero idea that Balak wanted to destroy them. They had no concept that these Moabites were trying to curse them. They didn't have any idea. It was all happening in the, in the heights of Moab, in the throne room of, of Balak, and etc. And so they were just probably thinking that, isn't it nice that we are living in peace here in the plains of Moab, surrounded by these Moabites? They're not like the Amorites. They're not like the Edomites. They didn't come out and try to attack us. What? These are nice folks. And you know what? And it's, they're so kind to us. They're so hospitable. They even invited us to join, to join them in their community feasts. You know, all of us live in uh, particular cities. We're here in San Francisco. I live down a little down the peninsula. In our, our city, we all have these little community uh, festivals, community activities, and we're all you know invited to uh, attend and participate. And it's kind of cool, right? It's like oh, you feel like part of a community when you get inv- uh, invited and you participate in these things, um, whether you invite and participate or not. It's sort of, um, it's basically even, even the church. We have community gatherings and events uh, uh, as well that we invite people to, like our picnic or, or like Christmas events, etc. But religion in, those, religion in those days was a, a very vital part of every ancient culture. And all their feasts, all their festivals were basically had an element of religion involved. The... Inevitably, a part of the religion, they would have sacrifices. They would sacrifice meat or something to their gods. And then, just like Old Testament sacrifices, sometimes the sacrifice that were offered, not all of it would be burned up. Not all of them would be consumed by fire. Sometimes some of it could be kept by the worshipers. And those worshipers were then to share with their friends, their family, and it would become a feast centered around this particular religious uh, uh, feast day. So these religious feasts, that the Israelites were invited to were, were likely just simply great, just great, great, uh, great acti- community activities, great uh, occasions of joy. It was, a, it was just kind of a really celebratory activity. There, there was a lot of feasting. There was dancing. There was probably drinking. Uh, and this kind of just, it was all those things in and of themselves are not necessarily wrong. But it was also a time of worshiping. Because of the, the nature of these community gatherings, they, they, gathered their, they, they gathered because of their worship of idols. The practice of these feasts inevitably involved bowing down even to their gods. It was just part of the practice. Like for many of us who come from ancestral worship background, some of you do, some of us do that. I remember as a little child, you know, we would offer up, you would offer up the, the oranges and then we'd offer up the chicken at the, to, before our ancestors and sometimes light some incense and then I would be told to bow to the ancestors three times and then you know what we're going to have for, we're going to have for shortly after that? Orange chicken. Right? That's right. So, <laughs> that's a joke, okay? Oranges and chicken. Now, so, and never, you, you partake in the meal. You, you, what's offered, you, you should partake. But along the way, we, 
learn to bow, revere these ancestors as, as a part of ancestral worship. Even if you didn't believe it, if you ignored it, you didn't think that that was true. But the very fact that we involve ourselves, and in the, in the Israelites involve themselves in these community feasts, community festivals, they participated in the worship of idols with the Moabites and Midianites. Now, these eventually, perhaps the Israelites participated, not that they believed in those gods, but they just thought, well, hey, we're just going to be friendly. We want to just kind of have a relationship with the, with the lost here because so we can you know, build a bridge to reach out to them, you know, something like that. But these sacrificial feasts, these bowing to the gods, eventually, as we see in the text, led to also sexual immorality. Because sadly, a common practice of the Canaanite religion in that day was sexual immorality with cult prostitutes. The men of Israel were enticed into sexual immorality with a Moabite woman as part of their worship of Baal. And Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility, the harvest, as well as fertility. So it was, very, um, it was a very natural part of that where they would practice sexual immorality as a worship of the god of fertility. The mention here of Baal of Peor, Peor is a reference to the lo- to location. And back in chapters 23 and 24, it was one of those locations that Balak had taken Balaam up to. It was one of the high places of Baal. In those days, remember Baal, these gods that would be worshipped in high places. And just even still sometime today is the way. Is, that's the way. So in this way, Israel joined themselves the ESV, I like, they translate as yoked themselves. And that just has that this reminds us of 2 Corinthians 6. They yoked themselves, they paired themselves, they partnered themselves with Baal of Peor in their participation in these community gatherings, these community religious gatherings, and the, the feasting, the drinking, the dancing, and the harlotry. And yet, Israel did so knowing full will that this was exactly what God had warned them not to do. On Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34, we also kind of read it in Leviticus 26, God had forbidden Israel from making any covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Exodus 34, um, oh, sorry, I just jumped it, missed that point, rise of a dollar. Exodus 34, verse 15 to 16, we read this. God warns, tells them not to make covenant. It says, otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. So God knows that they are not, they are not to, uh, to make a covenant relationship with these, uh, these people of the land because they worshiped other gods. And they, you know, what might seem innocuous at first is really a participation in the worship of those gods. And when you start intermarrying with with their daughters and their daughters with your sons, then inevitably they will lead you to start worshiping their gods. Now, of course, uh, you know, there are always sometimes exceptions. You know, we think uh, of Ruth being the Moabitess who came to faith in, in the Lord and uh, and, and others like her, but the majority of times when we see the Israelites intermarrying with uh, the people of the land surrounding these worshipped other idols, oftentimes than not, Israel was the one who was led into idolatry and immorality. 
And by not separating themselves from the pagan Moabites, Israel became seduced by the immorality and, and idolatry of, the, of their, their neighbors. But what is not mentioned in this whole chapter is basically how this ultimately all started. That where did this scheme come from? And we surprisingly learn, not in this chapter who it is, but we surprisingly learn later on in chapter 31. In Numbers 31.16, we learn that it was through the counsel of Balaam that caused the sons of Israel to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. That's what uh, Numbers 31.16 says. Balaam was the one who told Balak to basically cause Israel to trespass against the Lord by committing by intermarrying with the Moabite people. What's more, Revelation 2.14 confirms this, in fact. There in Revelation 2.14, we read that Balaam kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So it was Balaam's constant... He kept... It wasn't just he told him. He, he kept teaching Balak. He said, I'm gonna, I know I couldn't curse them, but I'm going to tell you something even better. Because I know how to get them to be cursed. And that is through their God. Remember the part of the Mosaic Covenant was that God promised blessings for their obedience. Leviticus 26. And then, but he also promised curses for their disobedience. If they don't obey God's laws, then he would pour upon them the curses that, the, that he poured out upon Egypt. And so, uh, and he would do so because he loved them to bring them back to himself. But so we see, and so we see then, uh, that it was Balaam's scheme to convince the Midianites, the Moabites, to, to invite the Israelites to join with them in their community feast, to, to come and join with them, eating food sacrificed to, to idols. Actually, another passage, food sacrificed to the dead even. But it, it was all part of their worship. And, and it was through this food sacrifice, the eating, and then the, the drinking, and then the dancing, and then the, inevitably the, the immorality that struck, that crept in, it led Israel to become joined to Baal of Peor. And it would cause Israel to stumble through their idolatry and immorality, knowing that God would discipline them. And that's, uh, and that's how idolatry rises in Israel. And that's how idolatry can rise up in our lives as well. The lure of idolatry and immorality remains every bit of reality for the people of God today. Now, we may not have idols of cows or, you know, or goats or bulls and things like that, but the predominant idol of our country, of our nation, is the idol of self. It's the idol of self. It is that idol that says that I am the ultimate authority for what is right or wrong. I am the ultimate decider of how I should live my life. And we've convinced ourselves, uh, and we're, we've convinced ourselves by secular philosophies that tell us that right or wrong is determined by what? By, by what you feel inside, right? It feels right to me. Therefore, it makes it right. And you can't tell me that it feels right to me. What's, and that is a, that's part of the philosophies of the world that's influencing us. 
But the world is constantly, it continues to, to, to love self above all, above God himself by influencing us through education and government and movies and music as well as even sports. The secular world tries to influence the church to join them in their immorality, to join them in their idolatry. They would want us to, to they want to normalize their wickedness, not only in the, in the world, in our country, but even in the church. They want us to accept and even celebrate their immoral lifestyles and their unbiblical identities. And if we do not bow down, then we are the ones who are labeled what? Evil, wicked, racist, hateful, bigoted. However, it is because they have rejected their creator and their God that they have everything upside down. And they call good that which is evil, and they call evil that which is good. If you were saved recently, you would remember that still. That's how many of us were until God opened our eyes. Now, sadly for Israel, Balaam's scheme worked. Idolatry and immorality entered into the people of God. They joined themselves with Baal Peor, and God was angry with Israel. He was angry. Holy God was angry with Israel because he was jealous for them. They belonged to him. And so in verses 4 through 9, we see the response to idolatry. This is God's response to idolatry. How does holy God respond to idolatry in his people? He responds much more strongly than idolatry in among the unbelieving people of the world. We read in verse 4 to 9 these words of chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. This is a pretty, uh, this is a very uh, shocking kind of story to, to read about. It was an event that was true. It happened even by, particularly by our standards today. There's a lot of violence here. There's, there's definitely some judgment being dispensed. And it's kind of, it sort of, sort of shocks us. And if it shocks you and me, and if it shocks us, it's because we don't really believe that idolatry is that evil. That's basically why we're designed to think that you know it, the uh, idolatry is something that it's it's okay. It's, it's not that not that bad. It's not as bad as lying or or stealing or murder. But there's a reason why idolatry and the worship of God are fill the first and second commandments of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not worship any idols. Israel had commit, broken both of these first two commandments. They turned to idolatry, immorality, joined themselves with Baal of Peor, and were joining themselves, Baal of Peor, with God who dwelt among their midst. It is an affront to holy God. And whereas God had just protected them from being cursed, 
They now just simply go around and turn their back on him and they violated his, his covenant with them. And so God in his holy justice and wrath disciplines his people as he always does. He had done so throughout the wilderness and he does so here again. And the discipline that we find here from verse 4 and following move from a general instruction to a more specific instruction, as we're going to see. First of all, in verse 4, God instructs Moses to execute the leaders of the people. Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Since the nation, the people as a whole, were guilty, God here instructs Moses to execute and punish the representatives of the people. It's like if the church was guilty of sin, it's like God would say, take the elders of the church and go execute them all. It's a strong response, but it is the role of these leaders, that they're placed to, to represent, they're placed to defend, they're, they're placed to hold back their people from sin. It's a high calling. God holds them accountable. Before that is carried out, Moses then passes his instruction to the people. We see that in verse 5, Moses passed on the instruction to the judges of Israel. These were those who would carry out uh, the, the judgment. And he, tell, to, and he says there in verse 5, to each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And it seems at first, if you read this, and commentators do differ, differ on this, it seems that God, Moses has given a different instruction from what God had just said. Uh, certainly, they're, they're different words. Take all the leaders, execute them, and then he says, well, uh, take the ones who join themselves to Baal Peor and kill them. It, is, it, is it a different command? Has Moses basically changed God's word? Has he sinned against God? I believe that I'm of the camp that God, Moses had not sinned in this case. That... Uh, because remember what happened when Moses did sin in this way? When he didn't follow God's instructions? Remember the, the rock that, where the, that he was supposed to speak to? Instead of speaking to, he, he struck it twice. And what did God do right away? He called him out. And as soon as he called him, he says, because of this, you've not treated me holy. You're going to basically never enter the promised land. That was God's punishment upon Moses for that for striking the rock as opposed to speaking to the rock. Here he changes, if he has changed God's instruction, he has failed to treat God holy and he deserves to be punished, right? But God, is, God does not say anything here about any reproof or rebuke of, of Moses. In fact, he continues throughout his, the Lord spoke to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses as if nothing wrong has taken place. And I believe that's why nothing wrong has taken place. But what Moses has done is that he has given the more specific instruction from the Lord, whether God told him and it wasn't included here, or whether he's in, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interpreting the instruction more specifically, clearly. Yes, though the nation as a whole is guilty of uh, their sin, of idolatry and immorality, and God wants to publicly punish the leaders of the nation as representatives, to be specific, God wants to punish those leaders that were guilty of idolatry and immorality. It's those leaders who are guilty who need to be brought before all and rebuked before all and punished before all so that everyone would fear lead, being a leader who would lead their people into sin. 
as for the general population of Israel, the rest of the people who were guilty, God was already also punishing them. Though he sent a plague, as he has done in, the, in previous, uh, previous stories and numbers. God was sent a plague throughout the nation that was already striking and killing people all throughout the camp. It's why probably at this point, the, as Moses is speaking, the congregation of Israel has gathered near the tent. They always start running to God when, when God starts striking them down with the plague. And so they're all running, and they're all weeping, and they're, they're, they're kind of starting to maybe recognize their sin, that there's sin in the camp. But then, just as Moses gives God's instruction, an outrageously, egregious, wicked thing happens right in front of their eyes as they are seeking the Lord there in front of the tent of meeting. Whereas the idolatry and immorality had taken place in the, in the high places of Baal. It wasn't going to be taking place in the camp of Israel. It was going to take place in the high places, the, the temples where Baal was, where the feasting would take place, the offerings could be made, where the sacrifices and the drinking and the, and the, and the immorality could take place. But here in verse 6, we read that one of the Israelites actually brings a Midianite woman into the camp in sight of everyone the whole congregation, while they're weeping over their sin, and this one takes this woman into his camp, into his own tent, and presumably commits immorality and idolatry. And when Phineas, he's the hero here, the grandson of Aaron, saw it in his zeal for God, he picks up a sword. I'm not sword, a spear. And he went, goes after this man, he go, chases them into the tent where they are committing their immorality, and he pierces them through. It's implied that they're so close to each other that he pierces through the man into the woman's stomach. And it was, uh, he was as of judging them in the midst of the act of their immorality and idolatry. And that act of zeal for, from Phineas brings an end to the plague of God's wrath. But before that time, before that very act, 24,000 of Israel had already died. 24,000 people had died because of their idolatry and immorality in joining themselves to Baal Peor. It's a miracle. It's, a, it's the praise of God that more had not been killed because the people had joined with Baal Peor. God had disciplined his people and would have kept doing so were it not for this intercession of Phineas. And so we're reminded then that as God's people, if we ever fall into immorality or idolatry or for, the matter, for that matter, any sin, God is a God who is jealous for his people. God is jealous and he will discipline us. When we use the word jealous, it has a negative connotation. You know, that's a bad thing. But here, God is clearly a jealous God. And when jealousy, there's a, there's a righteous jealousy you are to be jealous for the things that belong to you. The people of God belong to him. And he is jealous in that, they, they would, that they would remain faithful to him. Much as we, if we are, many of us are married here, if we have spouses, that we would be jealous for them that they would remain faithful to us. And hopefully they would be jealous for us that we'd remain faithful to them. There's that ought to be a jealousy, a righteous jealousy. And it's a jealousy that acts, that seeks to bring back a spouse that is unfaithful. In this case, God brings back his people that are unfaithful. 
That's why uh, when, we, uh, when you read Hosea, you think about how Hosea brought back his wife, Gomer, who was unfaithful. It's, it's a picture, that same picture of God. He's a faithful God who's jealous for his people, always brings them back. God is faithful to discipline us. And if, you're, if, you, if you are a child of God, if you're, if you're a part of the people, if you're a son or daughter of God, if you fall into idolatry and morality, God who loves you is going to discipline you. He's going to make your life miserable because he loves you. So if you're being miserable right now, you should consider that maybe there's some idolatry in my life that I'm not repenting of. Now, it could be at the very well, as very well that it's just a trial that the Lord's allowing you to experience in your life for your, you know, just for your sanctification. But at the same time, it, it's worth considering that maybe there's some idolatry in my life. That's why I'm experiencing this trial, this tribulation. Maybe that's why I'm experiencing even, even illness or disease. It's possible. Not in every case, but it's possible. Hebrews 12.6 reminds us of God's loving discipline. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he, re- whom he receives. God is faithful to discipline his people. You know, earlier we talked about the idol of self that we need to be aware of. And, but there are, I still would, would want to encourage us to be mindful of the other idols that are, can be in our lives that God will discipline us for. Many what we call the traditional idols. Uh, <clears throat> maybe it's not going to be the, the traditional idols that we wrestle with in our world are the idols that are, are material things. They're, they're possessions. But anything. But a simple definition of idols are things that we love more than God, things that we seek more than God, things that we would we would hold in higher esteem than God. What's your greatest treasure in this life? It ought to be God. But many of us sometimes. If you're honest with yourselves, we, we're tempted to think of other things, other people in our lives. I love my wife. But, as, <laughs> but, but I love God more. I love my children. They're great treasures to me. But I love God more. And we teach our families, our, our, we ought to teach our families that. If we love anything, whether people, whether possessions, whether pleasures, more than our love for God, that was, we're willing to disobey God, we're willing to not seek after God, we're willing to cast God aside, cast God's word aside, then that is an idol in our life. And whatever it is in your life and mine, let us resolve to put away those things that would cause us to love or seek anything more than God, right? We are to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. That's the greatest commandment. Well, we see the response of God to idolatry. Lastly, we are reminded to, uh, we are encouraged to avoid idolatry and morality in our life by the results of idolatry here in verses 10 to 18. And this one kind of just wraps it up quickly. We see some, some two, we actually see two results of the idolatry at Peor. First, a result upon Phineas in verses 10 through 15. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace and that shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. 
Now the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. The name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was head of the people of a father's household in Midian. The Lord again speaks to Moses, and this time he gives a word of commendation, a commendation of Phineas. Phineas here is credited for basically turning away God's wrath from the sons of Israel. His action turned away God's wrath. Now, it's important to add that Phineas was not acting as an example for us to take up vigilante justice. Okay? I want to make sure we know that. Because I can, I can just imagine someone taking this passage out of context. Out of context. Phineas was acting as a faithful servant of the Lord. He was, if you recall, if you, as we read in the text, Phineas was a priest. His grandfather Aaron was the first high priest. His father Eliezer, the current high priest at the time, was the second priest, high priest. And it was the priest's job, and there was all the descendants of Levi through Aaron, it was the priest's job to represent the people before God. They were also to represent God before the people carry out God's instructions, carry out God's law, carry out God's execution of his law. And so Phineas, as a priest, is among, most likely among the judges of Israel that, uh, that Moses was instructing. And Eliezer, take, understanding his charge, in righteous jealousy, carries out God's punishment upon the idolatrous couple. This is like, this is the, the best parallel when the police take up their, take their task to heart and they go and they arrest and they punish those, you know, those who do evil. And so Eliezer brought about God's punishment because he was jealous for God's jealousy. He knew that these people belonged to God. And God does not want his people to worship other gods. So Eliezer, by carrying out his, his act, not only brings about, <clears throat> carries out judgment on behalf of God upon this couple, but in doing so, he spares the rest of the congregation, the rest of the people from experiencing the full wrath of God. 24,000 people only died, really, if the whole people were guilty. It's not like 24,000 only went to the... To the uh, to the Baal of Peor and sacrifice and join them in celebration, the whole nation had gone. And, but what's interesting here is that Phineas's act is described as having made atonement for the sons of Israel. They made atonement. He atoned for the sins of Israel. Normally, priests had a responsibility to atone for the sins of the people, right? The high priest would do once a year. We know about that. But they would atone for the people by offering the death of an animal sacrifice, right? In place of guilty people. But in this case, atonement is made through the actual death of the guilty ones. And we're reminded here that sin must be atoned. Either it will be atoned by a substitute in your place, or you will be atoning for your sins, not just with your physical death, but with your eternal death, with the continual suffering and and conscience hell and and, and torment because, you say, well, why does it end? Because our sin is against a holy, infinite God. 
And therefore, the payment against the punishment for such is an infinite payment. That is why only the infinite God-man could come and pay for the infinite penalty of our sins. This enact, Phidias made atonement for the sons of Israel. It's kind of interesting here, as he made atonement in, uh, for the nation of Israel, we're actually told in verse 14 to 15, actually the names of the two people slain. It's sort of odd, it stands out. And of course, they are written here for a purpose. They're written because these people were known. These were known to the people of Israel. These were not just two strangers. The man was known as Zimri. Now, we don't know who Zimri is today. It's like nobody special. But he's the son of Solomon. He was a leader of the Simeonites. This Zimri was no unknown person. He was a son of a leader. He's like Hunter Biden, right? Somebody who's well-known because, well, he's the son of the leader. And so what he does, well, can't help but be on our radar. Just like the previous president's children. Okay, let me be equal opportunity. Okay, but it's the son of a leader. And so, as a son of a leader, you know, uh, he, he has a huger influence upon the world than many others. He's a representative. He would, he's already likely an up and coming, because he's, a, he's, he's a committing sexual immorality. So, he's already probably an up and coming leader within the nation of Israel, for certain in the tribe of Simeon. Now, as for the Midian night woman, her name was Cosby. We actually learned her name. Why? Because she was actually the daughter of one of the heads of Midian. In fact, later in Numbers 31, we're going to find that she's the daughter of one of the kings of Midian. She's a, she's a princess. She's, not someone, she's also just, you know, she's somebody who's famous. These two people, Zimri and <clears throat> Cosby, are people that we would be look, following on Instagram right now. We'd be looking at their TikToks. Oh, what did they do recently? Well, okay, maybe not we, me, maybe you, but, you know, you know, okay, somewhat. <laughs> we follow these celebrities because why? Because I don't know why, actually. Why do we follow them? Just because they keep posting photos of themselves and what they're doing. And when they, they, they get so many followers, they say, well, they must be worth following, so I'm going to follow them. And, and then when they, oh, they're doing that, I want to do that. They wear that, I want to wear that. They dress like that, I want to dress like that. They do this and that, and they're TikTok, oh, I want to do that. So many copycats, you know, just come following them in their thing. We imitate them. And if they're going to worship this God and commit this immorality, you know our people are thinking right now, oh, maybe I should worship that God. Maybe I should commit that idolatry. And that's, how, that's why people, their names are actually mentioned because they're well known. And it was very likely that they had their, their participation together this is probably not the first time they were together, okay? Had already become well-known in the congregation, and that's why so many of the people followed after these, these kind of leaders that lead Israel into idolatry and immorality. In fact, it's quite likely that a great number of the 24,000 that died were from the tribe of Simeon, where uh, Zimri came from. When we compare the census in the next chapter with the census of chapter 1, we actually find that the Simonites experienced a 50% decrease in the number of their warriors. Nobody else even comes close to that. Well, because somehow, somehow, this, the tribe of Simeon diminished greatly, most likely because they had followed Zimri in his idolatry and immorality. But what's more, since Zimri was a recognized leader, you know, sometimes the sons and daughters of, of presidents or of leaders, are, are they're, they're almost untouchable. 
They're well protected. And so probably here, Phineas or any of the other priests, well, who am I to, to, to kill that person? Maybe they'd be a little afraid. But Phineas wasn't afraid because God had given him instruction. He feared no man, and so he carried out the judgment upon them. And as a, re- as a reward, as a result of his zeal for God, God blessed him with a covenant of peace. God affirmed with him the, a perpetual priesthood from the family of Phineas. So we see that God is, God is honored. God blesses those who are zealous for him, and as he does for Phineas. And we need to be zealous for God, for his holy, for to be holy people. Secondly, the results of idolatry impact the Midianites, verse 16 to 18. There's a consequence for the Midianites. Strangely, the Moabites aren't mentioned, but the Moabites and Midianites, they, they're, they're kind of allies, so uh, it's, there's a, but particularly these Midianites are, are, are signaled out. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Be hostile to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks and which, with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor and the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. Israel from this day forward would be hostile to the kings, to the, to the Midianites. In chapter 31, in fact, we will actually see that Israel will defeat and destroy Midian in battle, killing all the kings of battle, including uh, Cosby's father. But what's even more significant there, we're going to find out in chapter 31, that the seer Balaam is killed as well, because it was his scheme that resulted in this, this, uh, the rise of idolatry in Israel. And we're reminded that God is going to ultimately destroy all his enemies who oppose him. God is a jealous God for his people. And yes, he punishes his people, but he also is going to punish those who would cause a stumbling block to his people. God is, we read in, we read in Isaiah, we read uh, even in Numbers 23, 24, that God will judge the nations that oppose him and his people. Yes, the enemies of God may want to curse his people. They will strive to harass God's people. They will malign God's people. They attack and slander God's people. They may even kill God's people, but they cannot harm our souls. Jesus said, we ought not to fear those who can put to death the body. We ought to fear the ones who can condemn our souls and destroy our souls for eternity. Our lives for eternity are secure because God has blessed us in Christ Jesus and we as the people of God must strive to remain, in, to, to remain holy to, unto him, to look to him alone, to avoid idolatry and immorality because God reigns and, and, we don't, and though we may be discouraged by the forces and the, the, that are striving against, working against us, we can trust that God is our king. And he sits on the throne, and he reigns, and he will eventually destroy all his enemies. I like what David writes in Psalm 29, verse 10 to 11. The Lord sat as king at the flood. You know, when the flood that destroyed all the wicked of the world, except for Noah and his family? Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. God was, at, was completely in sovereign control when he destroyed the world through the flood. And God remains sovereignly in control as king forever. In the midst of whatever forces may be opposed to us, known or unknown, we have no, we have no need to fear because our God sits as king still today. And he will give strength to his people, and he will bless his people, and he will give us peace 
until he brings us home because of Christ Jesus. Well, let's wrap up. And here as a conclusion, Numbers 25 shows us the danger of idolatry and morality among the people of God. We're called to be holy. The generations of Israel to come, even those living in the promised land, they would not be free of idolatry. They would not be free of immorality. They were always constantly surrounded by idol worshipers, nations who worship them, always tempting them to fall into unfaithfulness to God. And we, brothers and sisters, here in the church in San Francisco, are, we must acknowledge that we are not unlike the people of Israel in that day. We who live here in the plains of San Francisco, waiting for God to, to, waiting for God to, to lead us, bring us into the promised land, we here live in relative comfort. We're living in relative ease. We're not a, a, and we, we have our blessings of God in Christ Jesus. But let us not forget that we are still on a journey. We're here on earth, and we are surrounded by enemies of God. We may, we, I believe that we are often unaware of the dangers of living in an unbelieving world. We don't really think it's that dangerous. In fact, some Christian leaders would, would, have, us, would have the church of Jesus Christ become more like the world. They become more like the world. We can, we can maybe more effectively reach the world. The more they'll like us, the more they'll likely accept our message. But the church would be wrong to think so. The more we're like the world, the more our lives and our message will become compromised by lies. It will be the pressure from the world to conform our message to something that will fit their philosophies and their, their speculations. They will not allow us to influence them. They, want, they will compel us to submit to their ways. We're to be a holy people, though. We're to be set apart. We're to be unlike the world while living in the world so that the truth of our message, the life that we live, is not compromised. May God protect this church. Yes, we are given, readily given to sin, easily lured away by worldliness and temptation and idols. But the word of God that we received this morning is a reminder to us to be vigilant. Let me include just uh, three questions for us for your small group discussion this week, and as many have small group discussions. And just questions for your personal reflection. Just how might idolatry or immorality be present in your life today? Uh, anything. What, what are the things in our life that we love more than God, that we seek more than God, that we treasure more than God? What are, the, are there immoralities in our life that we're allowing to continue? And those things we should ask ourselves and confess and repent of them. What might be the underlying thoughts or beliefs that may be contributing to your sin? We, we generally, it's because we don't think about these things that why we often fall into idolatry. But there are usually underlying thoughts, there's an underlying belief that, you know, oh, I deserve this. Or I, um, you know what, God will, God's, God's going to understand about this. He's going to let me slide about this. Or, you know, these, and it, it, there's always some kind of underlying thought or, and that justifies us in our minds to allow us to practice, to have something before God in our lives. Uh, and then thirdly, how can remembering, though, that our high priest Jesus atoned for our sins help us in resisting temptation? Because we, for, we forget what God has done that we readily fall into everything else of our world. May we remember what 
God has done through Christ and that helps us to fight against idolatry and immorality. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this word from, uh, <clears throat> from Numbers 25. Lord, we confess and acknowledge that we are constantly uh, tempted by uh, idolatry and morality. And Lord, we, it comes to at us through many ways, uh, through our media, through our education. And Lord, I, I hope people, we, we don't want to throw out our, our, our media. We don't necessarily want to throw out all our technology. But Lord, grant us instead minds and hearts that are discerning, that are filled with your truth, so that whatever we're participating in in our world, whatever things that we're being invited to, to join in with, that we would understand and see through your lens, that we'd be weary of those things that would lead us into idolatry or immorality, that we would be, so that we would continue to be a holy people that fear you more than anything else, that we live for you so that we can be the people who live as salt and light in our world. Lord, help us to, to honor you with our lives and we remind, remind us always of what you have done for us, how you atoned for us our sins through Christ Jesus. And let his, your love, his love, guide us in responding in a pursuit of holiness. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.